0: Welcome to Mortals, a podcast where we explore how humans have managed their dead throughout history. From barrows and burials to cremations and kurgans,
1: we are taking a look at rites, rituals, and practices from around the world.
0: Mortals Podcast is for the morbidly curious or the curiously morbid.
2: This week, we are talking about the AIDS Memorial Quilt. Please take care while you are listening to this episode there are detailed descriptions of disease, of rampant homophobia, as well as government negligence, medical negligence, and epidemic outbreaks, as though we have not had enough of those. And of course, and unfortunately, a great deal of death. Now, let's get on to the show. Today, we are going to talk about the NAMES project AIDS Memorial Quilts. It is the largest community-based art project in the entire world. It's also called the AIDS Memorial Quilts for short, or the AIDS Quilts. It's got a couple of different configurations of its moniker. And each panel of this enormous project is hand-sewn by friends, family, lovers, and even fans of those lost to the AIDS epidemic. Each panel measures three feet by six feet. Any guesses as to what else is about that size? A coffin?
1: A coffin?
2: Very close. A... <laughs> like a grave. The grave that the coffin goes into ah. is approximately three foot by six foot. Wow. Well. So it's, uh, it's a lot. <laughs> but to really understand of the significance and the weight and the the power of the quilts. We have to understand how the AIDS epidemic unfolded and how it got to so many people unchecked and unrecognized in the U.S. Do either of you remember very much about the AIDS epidemic? We all lived through some of its height. I
1: think the only real like, I guess, real world kind of connotation for me, I guess, is uh, Freddie Mercury (laughs) is kind of the only thing that I think that is the closest I think I've ever gotten to it, because I am a huge Queen fan, and uh, Freddie Mercury died of HIV AIDS, or complications from HIV AIDS, but can't say that I knew anybody in real life. Well, not that Freddie Mercury wasn't a real person, but, you know, personally. Yeah. How about you, Janine?
2: Do you have any re- remembrance of passing knowledge of what was going on?
0: Uh, not really. The first time I kind of remember becoming aware of HIV AIDS was... <laughs> do you remember when the... I think it was the iPod... Not the iPod Touch, but one of the iPods came out and they made a special red one. And red was not a usual color that they made them in, and it was the all the proceeds or whatever, what have you, go towards. It's, I don't exactly know how, how the breakdown was, but knowing what I know now about that kind of marketing, I kind of question whether or not that was a little bit of red washing, like uh. green washing and pink washing, pink washing being for breast cancer awareness and stuff. I'm not saying it is, but I question it a little more now but that is the only time that I remember thinking and becoming aware of that not the only time but that is the the first time I remember becoming aware of HIV and AIDS Um, I did also grow up in a very small town and I don't know anybody personally that had HIV or AIDS so that probably is a contributing factor to my lack of knowledge
2: yeah I wouldn't say that either of your experiences not really knowing much about AIDS, growing up in the 90s, is unusual in any way. Uh, I myself didn't really know anything about AIDS or HIV. I had a passing understand that AIDS was something that gay people had. Um, I also grew up largely in a a small town, very, very white communities, uh, very blue collar. And I just had the, the broad understanding that there was a disease for gay people which goes to show kind of the longevity of the myth and the the metaphor of illness that was used during the the start and the mid and the ongoing epidemic pandemic that is HIV and AIDS around the world, uh, and particularly in straight communities. If you didn't know a gay person, there, it was likely that you didn't really hear about it, unless you were in one of the hotbeds, like... New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and other areas like Chicago, Paris, seem to have quite a bit. (laughs) I didn't really start to understand it until I watched the film adaptation of Rent. And it wasn't the first time I watched it because I was a shitty 8th grader. Since then, I've watched it many times and cried just so much every single time. And after doing this research, I and probably any of you listening who have wanted to know what sequence... I am talking about where you just cry endlessly, because there's no end to it. I'm sorry you will cry more, as will I. So let's step back a little bit before the first crashing wave of this horrible new disease swept into the US. And we are going to focus kind of primarily on America, even though there is still a huge ongoing HIV and AIDS crisis in sub-Saharan Africa, as there has been since kind of before it even hit America, but sociopolitical understandings, causes, effects, coverage, were all slightly different, and hopefully one day I'll be able to we'll be able to address the situation more clearly and with a better understanding of how it's affected other parts of the world. As for the United States, the 1970s were a huge time for gay liberation, for pushing for political power, for being able to to build businesses and to build communities and to start to carve out parts of the country where you could walk down the street holding the hand of your partner, where you didn't have to hide. As we know, that's still something that's sorely lacking in a lot of places. But one of the places where that was carved out so clearly and so demonstratively that it became something of a mecca for North American queers was the Castro neighborhood in San Francisco. New York City had a similar gay scene but there was some there were some tensions between the east coast west coast gays as there is between east coast west coast anybody's in the United States. Uh, New York folks versus LA folks seem to always want to fight.
0: West coast <laughs> best coast.
2: Yeah. So in places like the Castro neighborhood there was a real upswing in commercial sex businesses such as bathhouses Like, kind of like dungeon clubs, gay clubs, gay bars. The partying and sex scene was a huge component of gay nightlife going into the late 1970s and early 1980s. And as a result of that, there was also something of a a minor epidemic of venereal and enteric diseases as well. Bathhouses tended to... Promote a very casual way of uh encountering people sexually, and given that after with the gay liberation movement being very much about the liberation of gay sexuality, monogamy was not a popular theme. (laughs) And without the risk of reproduction, why the fuck use a condom, right? So more and more kind of extreme. Uh, sexual practices did tend to crop up a little bit more, like, rimming and oral sex and fisting. But the thing is is, is that this kind of extreme height of venereal diseases that men were catching from unprotected sex wasn't really uh, a big red flag, because you could just go down to the clinic, get a shot, get a cream, get a treatment, and be back out in two or three days if you were really patient. So they were quick and easy to deal with, so nobody was really concerned about it. The late 1970s also saw a growth in political power, and this is something that'll be important going forward, is that in San Francisco in particular, a man named Harvey Milk was elected supervisor for California. He was the first openly gay elected official in Californian history, and he really mobilized a lot of gay voting power. In their, and really made it apparent that the gay community was a community that politicians needed to treat with respect and listen to because they represented a significant portion of voters. So he was really making a lot of headway for the gay community. And unfortunately, he was assassinated in his office in 1979, as was the San Franciscan mayor, George Moscone. Which was a devastating blow politically for the gay scene. Cleve Jones, who, as we will discuss later, first conceptualized the AIDS quilt, was an aide to Harvey Milk. He was fairly close with him. He was, that was how he started his political career, is under Harvey Milk. And he also organized the annual Candlelight Memorial March every year since the death of the mayor and the supervisor at the end of the 1970s. Come 1981, at Pride in San Francisco, it's the huge shebang, you know, we're memorializing the Stonewall Riots and continued resistance to police violence and discrimination. A group of gay doctors got together and we're like, we're noticing that there is some weird stuff going on. And at this point it was just that there was these unconnected cases of like swollen lymph nodes and some really resistant infections, particularly Pneumocystis pneumonia and this would grow to be a a much bigger problem. So pneumocystis pneumonia is a pretty rare form of pneumonia. It's a pretty rare lung infection that typically only occurs in people who have had their immune systems severely depressed. So chemotherapy patients and those who have just had transplants are typically the people who end up with this. But it does usually respond to treatment, and as the immune system returns to normal, it's dealt with by the body, goes away, no problem, should not be fatal. Which was part of what was so concerning with these gay men in New York, in Chicago, in San Francisco, and in LA, is that it wasn't responding to infection, or it wasn't responding to treatment. Even though it shouldn't have been a concern, something that was also coming up, with some overlap with the Pneumocystis pneumonia patients was gay men, again, seemingly unconnected by geography, by activity, by hospital, by doctor, were showing up at the hospital with these purple splotches on their skin. It tended to start at the feet. And swollen lymph nodes, you know, a lot of these men reported that they felt really tired, really not, you know, Mojo's kind of gone out of them, and they're like, what the fuck is up? And after some deliberation and some confusion, because most of the American doctors had never seen this before, even though it had been mentioned in textbooks, these men were diagnosed with having Kaposi's sarcoma, which often gets shortened to KS. KS is another extremely rare disease that is typically pretty benign, and up until that point had only been seen in Jewish and Italian men in their 50s and 60s, and it usually showed up didn't hurt, didn't really do anything, and usually the patient would die of something maybe related, but usually unrelated. So it was typically a pretty pretty benign cancer, and a pretty benign pneumonia, that for some reason, were not going away. In these healthy 20 to 30 something year old men who just happened to all be gay. Not a great time, not a great start.
0: <laughs> I can't imagine the feeling of being in that community at the time and doctors trying to figure this out and not you just you just keep living your life but you go out afraid. I say I can't imagine we're in a pandemic right now. Uh and that was a pandemic of sorts and I've heard people talk about it as a forgotten pandemic. It's still a pandemic.
2: It's still raging yeah. right now. This COVID-19, if you're, you know, if you're born after 1981 or have, haven't died before 1981, COVID-19 is not your first go-round at the pandemic rodeo.
1: I know a lot of uh, First Nations reservations have very high uh, HIV and AIDS epidemics, like, ongoing in Canada that people just, you know, people just don't either don't know or they don't talk about it. So it's definitely still 100% ongoing.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, it still counts. It still kills
2: huge, huge numbers of people every year. And usually from opportunistic infections, because as we'll discuss, what HIV and AIDS does, or what AIDS does when it stops being HIV, is it destroys your immune system. Just like completely out the window. Goodbye, motherfucker. Good luck, I guess. Though I don't think HIV is wishing you good luck. I think it's wishing you very, very bad luck.
0: Yeah. Well, I am eager to learn more because I don't know a whole lot.
2: That's fair. Again, I didn't know
0: a whole lot (laughs) for a long time as
2: well. I learned a huge amount doing this research. And most of it was extremely frustrating, actually. So the doctors who were dealing with this... It was a very small handful of doctors. It was like a dermatologist, one or two STD and infectious disease specialists from the CDC. And I should note as well that going into this, the gay community had lost their preferred candidate, Kennedy, to Carter in terms of who got to lead the party. And Ronald Reagan was elected president during all of this, supported largely by the moral majority, which is a, a very right leaning. Christian-affiliated, anti-gay movement, right? A lot of extreme right-wing stuff comes out of this moral majority that made up a huge part of Ronald Reagan's voter base. And a lot of his base or a lot of his promises were based on fiscal conservatism. So right before he was elected, the CDC decided to turn into a bunch of centers for disease control to kind of spread the load, and hopefully do more. And then Reagan came in and slashed their budget tremendously. So, it affects how everything plays out enormously. So these, you know, these men are coming in, doctors are running test after test after test, they're testing blood, they're testing urine, they're... they're doing scans, they're trying to figure out what the fuck is going on. Nothing's coming up. And they're essentially going, as far as we know, you're fine. These men were not fine. As we know now, they were suffering from AIDS. And it meant that these men were essentially wasting away. To die of AIDS is a horrible, slow, torturous death. It is when your immune system goes down, your body shuts. It can't do a lot of the things that it needs to to survive. It doesn't take in nutrients from the food that you eat. It damages your brain quite badly and can lead to dementia-like symptoms. You know, everything you do, you're at risk from everything. You, you, like you, you sweat through all of your blankets, your sheets, your mattress, the diarrhea that comes with it as well. And you end up weak and atrophied and die. And a lot of these doctors, you know, the first few patients, doctors You know, testing away what they can, but essentially, hopelessly, watching these men waste away and die from something that they cannot find. They're like, what the fuck is going on? What the fuck is going on? So some of these doctors start trying to collate information. They're pulling stuff from the Mortality and Morbidity Weekly Report. That might be the other way, it might be morbidity and Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. Um, but it's a report that went out across the country from various doctors on things that were coming up, causing deaths, so on and so forth. Aside from the pneumocystis pneumonia and the Kaposi sarcoma, men were also turning up with extremely persistent thrush. Toxoplasmosis, which is really rare in humans, it's a cat parasite. And other infections that typically you would only see in birds, mice, and sheep. Uh, what, is,
1: uh, what is threshing, sorry?
2: It's a yeast infection, essentially. And a lot of these were happening on top of each other. Because, again, the body didn't have an immune system. And a lot of these guys who had come in with Kaposi's sarcoma, who were really suffering, they were like, well, we know they have a cancer. We're going to irradiate the shit out of them. So these men who already have no immune system and don't know it, are also then receiving chemotherapy, which isn't really doing anything. And while they were looking at these things, an immunologist who was specializing in the very new field of T cells was asked to check a blood sample by another doctor in the building, and he had to check it a couple of times because there was no T helper cells in the blood sample. T helper cells are the ones that essentially run your immune system. (laughs) That year, uh, a lot of doctors tried to put papers forward through various journals to the CDC to essentially get word out and be like, there's this thing that's happening. Help! But as you may know, the academic publishing world is tremendously slow at the best of times. And papers and reports kept getting rejected for lack of evidence. For not a, you know, there's no study in here. There's not enough of a test group. This doesn't seem like a real thing. Which was a huge problem because there was also doctors independently of each other, because there's no reports, discovering what seemed to be the same infection cropping up in babies, which we'll get back to. So doctors turned directly to the CDC and were like, hey, we've got a problem. We need to study this. We need money to do it. And CDC was like, oh, yeah, this seems very pressing, very interesting. You definitely need funding. We'll get get to that right away. They got to it not for another five years. Oh, man. In 1981, the first, like, official year of the AIDS pandemic, about $6,000 was raised in total, and that was done by members of the gay community themselves. This was... Gay leaders, you know, going out and talking to people at the bathhouses, at festivals, at gay clubs, donating their own money, doctors donating their own money. And it's not just money to pay people, it's a lot of these guys were having to change over equipment in their labs in order to work with infectious agents. They needed new hoods, they needed better safety equipment, and they couldn't afford it. But money was coming, right? All you gotta do is buckle up and wait. And while they were waiting, by the end of 1981, there were 337 reported cases in America, and 130 of them were dead. 16 of those infected were children. Wow. So that's only year one. They had started to understand from the, the small cluster studies that they were trying to do themselves, that there was this long convoluted web of sexual contact spanning... From the West Coast to the East Coast because people would travel to these places, right, to go to these gay meccas where they could finally be themselves and not suffer from the repression and the oppression and the the familial homophobia, which was rife at this time, right? We still got plenty of homophobia now, but there was no protections for gay people at this point, if you were gay and your employer didn't like it, you're out of a job. If your landlord didn't like it, you're out of your apartment. There was nothing to protect you from having all of your resources and all your safeties stripped away. They were starting to understand that it was being sexually transmitted somehow. They weren't sure if it was a virus, if it was an STD, if it was a bacteria. Um, There's a lot of theories about it being a result of contaminated poppers, which was a type of inhalant uh, stimulant that was very popular in the gay scene to essentially keep you up all night. It, of course, was not poppers, and that was a waste of time and money, unfortunately. The only newspapers who were covering what was happening were small gay newspapers in the gay areas. And Kaposi's sarcoma quickly became known as gay cancer! Lovely Um, name. Yes, and it's an unfortunate trend that very much puts this burgeoning epidemic in lockstep with male homosexuality. When it started to show up in other people, particularly in intravenous drug users and their babies, particularly women who were sex workers and drug users, it was turning up in their newborn babies because HIV can pass through the placenta. It was later found that can also be passed through breastfeeding. And it was also showing up among Haitian refugees. But it also showed up in straight women who happened to sleep with men who slept with men. And still nobody was doing anything. There was no money coming out of anywhere. They were finding- they were like, Okay, so these sexual contacts between these two people who now have this problem was over a year ago. So doctors are looking at this dawning epidemic and understanding that they don't know what it is, how to stop it, how exactly it spreads, but they know that it has a latent infection period of over 12 months, in which the men who have it are asymptomatic carriers. They do not know. They have no signs, no symptoms, and are passing it around. You can see how this domino effect it goes bad goes very, very
0: bad. <laughs> uh, well, at the point where they're discovering that it has that latent period of up to 12 months or over 12 months, you know there's already so many more people who are infected who have not been identified yet, who have just yeah. continued unknowingly to, to spread. Um, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. And the so the, you know, IV drug users, children... Patients, women, were not considered to be suffering from gay cancer. Because they weren't gay. How could they have gay cancer if they weren't gay? So they just got written off despite doctors going, Wait, no! This is... This seems very connected. There was even... There was a Dutch doctor, Greth Rask, I think is how you say her name. Um, but she was a surgeon working in Zaire, in like 1970s in the 1970s who after returning home from working in an extremely undersupplied hospital in which she had a lot of contact with blood and other bodily fluids um, from patients essentially contracted pneumocystis pneumonia and died in 1977 and when later her colleague and friend who she had tasked with finding out what was killing her Um, suggested that it might be related to something in the blood. It might be a virus or something. They wrote it off and were like, well, she was a lesbian. So of course she got this gay immune deficiency. So suddenly there was this shift going on where it wasn't, okay, we have an immune deficiency and the largest group we have represented in our data is gay men. It was this only affects people who are gay, whether they are receiving... Infected blood or semen or not, that box of this is a disease that gays have is being erected and reinforced through the early 1980s.
0: I can't imagine that there will be any lack of moralizing about this subject. <laughs>
2: uh, yeah. uh, so the, the constellation of diseases and infections that were happening with super high co- comorbidity among this group was eventually called Gay-Related Immune Deficiency, or GRID. The CDC never cottoned on to the name, but it is what was being used to the rest of the medical community to discuss what was going on. By the end of 1982, 1,285 Americans were dead. Pretty substantial uh, increase. So because the, the spread was mimicking... Hepatitis B, which for which the vaccine had only recently been developed, with huge aid from the gay community, but with no known origin, treatments, or cures, hospitals in the affected areas were starting to get a little skittish. They were worried about being known as the AIDS hospital for their area, and a lot of house staff wanted to start turning away victims of GRID. There were signs posted at outside the doors of patients with GRID warning about blood or other bodily fluids being potential contaminants. Some nurses refused to actually care for those patients. They would leave the food trays outside the door and wouldn't change sheets that had been defecated on and sweat through by these men who were dying. And so they'd be stuck like that for an entire shift's worth of time. Hopefully, whoever came on after that nurse wasn't as much of an asshole, but there's no guarantee that it wasn't multiple shifts. And that wasn't, you know, it wasn't restricted just to healthcare. Other gay men in the communities were starting to grow a little paranoid, fastidiously checking themselves for purple spots, constantly poking their, you know, lymph nodes, looking for any sign, any change. Were they in danger? Doctors working on this would have nightmares about dying the deaths that they were witnessing these men suffer. And social services for those dying didn't exist. A lot of men refused to go into the hospital after their diagnosis knowing that they may never leave again and if they were gonna die because that was what the situation was. If you got grid, you died. They wanted to die at home at the very least. And that You know, that rejection of care by the people who are supposed to be caring for you, the systems that are supposed to help you when you are suffering a health crisis, that failure is a very unfortunate through line throughout the epidemic.
0: Mm, It's very dehumanizing.
2: Extremely. Extremely dehumanizing. By the end of 1983, 3,933 Americans were dead.
0: Is that a cumulative number, or just I, that year?
2: I think it's cumulative.
0: Okay. But, but still quite a quite a exponential increase.
2: Yeah, a lot of the articles that I looked at refer to it as scaling geometrically. Because the number of infected also grew by thousands mm. to tens of thousands. Things only got worse when some of the knock-on effects began to surface. Uh, gay men made up a pretty significant portion of blood donors... Up until recent decades, to that point, uh, severe hemophilia was also a death sentence. It meant you lived a very short life and you had to have an innumerable amount of blood transfusions, right? Hemophilia, for those who are unaware, means that you, it's a genetic disorder in which you don't have a clotting protein in your blood. So when you start to bleed, you just keep bleeding. And that means bruises continue to spread, any minor scrape or bruise. It's, it's not a good time. And up until this point, it had been, uh, it was a death sentence. Much the way that diabetes prior to the manufacturing of insulin was considered a death sentence. In kind of about the same time that this is starting to go on, a drug known as Factor Eight is introduced that makes a huge difference for the quality of life for those living with hemophilia. And it is synthesized from donated blood in order to get the enzyme uh, responsible for clotting into their system. It takes quite a few donors' worth of blood to synthesize factor eight, and HIV is a virus. The cleansing processes that they use for making factor eight are very good at getting rid of bacteria and other sorts of... Um, Bits and bobs, funguses and stuff, viruses are too small for it to be screened out. And so suddenly you had severe hemophiliacs developing grit. Cases were pretty low at the start, but it kicked up a huge problem with blood banks and the FDA, which oversaw a lot of the blood industry at the time. And a lot of high-ranking officials in the FDA did not believe that AIDS was real. They thought GRID was a hoax by the CDC to vie for more money from the very fiscally conservative Reagan administration. And so they refused to do anything to stop gay men or other high risk for HIV uh, infection groups from donating. And there was this this argument between gay community leaders and politicians and those representing the health industry. Institutes uh, that had this extra weight of how do you Protect people without offending the homosexual community or Escalating homophobia in the general public particularly this moral majority that was gaining a lot of momentum at the same time and There was a lot of fear about a blood ban becoming a slippery slope leading back to uh, medically based quarantining of gays, similar to the concentration camps, which was a very real fear for a lot of gay folks who had either knew people who had, or who were one generation on from from those who had dealt with the concentration camps directly. Right. Just
0: to be clear, you're talking about concentration camps run by Nazi Germany during World War yes. II. Yes. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. the the one where gays were marked with the pink triangle and were left in concentration camps after the Jewish victims were liberated
1: by the British I didn't know that Mm. that's fucking heartbreaking (laughs) yeah if there was one thing that
2: that Nazi Germany and Britain agreed on it was that they hated homosexuals (sighs) it's harrowing Uh, Hope everyone has a drink. This is this ride is not over. This is a heavy <laughs> episode.
1: Just be sure This to is practice. unfortunately. Everyone be sure to practice that good old self-care during and after this.
2: Yes. Absolutely. So there there was a lot of fighting between the CDC, the FDA, gay community leaders, and this small team of doctors who had been pushing and pushing and pushing in their funding their own research and struggling. They can't even hire data analysis analysts. They don't have time. And it was during these blowout screaming conferences between these groups that the name AIDS came into play. So acquired immune deficiency syndrome. The argument here is that they needed to drop the words gay or community, which was a common euphemism for the gay community at that time from the name, because this was not something that was limited to homosexuals this was not a homosexual disease hemophiliacs were getting it drug users were getting it children were getting it women were getting it it was everywhere and it it started a bit of a public panic as well because if there was tainted blood in the blood supply you were only one major accident away from being transfused with hiv positive blood And the FDA for a long time refused to budge, refused to have a questionnaire asking patients to self-identify, doing a straight-out blood ban. Sort of thing. They were very worried about whether it was appropriate to ask questions about the sexual behavior or substance behaviors of their clientele. They were worried about pushing people away because they relied on donation. There is a quote from And the Band Played On by Randy Schultz. I think it sums up the kind of refusal to act pretty well. Quote, No one cared because it was homosexuals that were dying. Nobody came out and said it was all right for gays to drop dead. It was just that homosexuals didn't seem to warrant the kind of urgent care another set of victims would engender. Scientists didn't care because there wasn't likely to be money or prestige as long as the newspapers ignored the outbreak and the press didn't like writing about homosexuals. Unquote which it seemed to be the case and a lot of a lot of gay men as particularly those who were coming down with this there was a real fear that they had done something to earn this that for something they had done had earned them this horrible death sentence right a lot of internalized homophobia and it was also a lot of public opinion swayed that way you know people who were Confirmed to have AIDS were avoided. Largely, they were hugely kind of shoved off to the side. There was misinformation going around as there started to be like a little bit of coverage here and there.
1: Misinformation and a pandemic.
2: Misinformation. It's almost like it's a it's a devastating thing to happen during an epidemic. (laughs) but a lot of that misinformation was about how this was spread because there still hadn't been confirmation. There was no education. There was no formal reports because they doctors kept getting rejected either that or they'd make some headway and refuse to share it because it was up for publication in nine months. And so people were starting to, they were scared and misinformation spread that you could catch it through any bodily fluid. So you couldn't, you know, you couldn't share a drinking fountain with somebody who had AIDS. You could get it from shaking their hand or sharing a toilet seat. People were petrified, and it was kind of leading to this... This medical... I'm doing finger quotes for those who aren't watching me do it. Like a, a, like a medical, sort of, social quarantining that was going on. But again, they didn't have any sort of golden demographic that was dying, so who cares? CDC continued to go, We don't have any money, sorry! and it just kept going on in white house press meetings um there was a reporter uh, named lester kinsolving and he he asked directly if the president or the white house was going to do anything about the gay plague that was going around and he started asking this in 1982 He persisted for a couple of years, but that first year, the entire room erupted into laughter at his query.
1: holy shit that's the entire press junket
2: the white house representatives and Larry Speaks who was the one
0: addressing it cruel unnecessary
2: yeah but it goes to show kind of what the public opinion was on on gays It didn't matter that they had voting power anymore, because the moral majority have voting power. Also, if they're all gonna die, what voting power could they possibly have? No one votes from their grave. By the end of 1984, 9,015 Americans were dead. And it had been discovered in at least 19- or sorry, 11 European countries by this point. It had also shown up in Canada, in sub-Saharan Africa, this thing was starting to spread everywhere. In 1985, a 13-year-old boy named Ryan White, who was living with severe hemophilia type A, was diagnosed with AIDS that came from his factor VIII. And there was almost immediate backlash after it was revealed publicly that he had AIDS because he was attempting to hide it for a time because he knew, he knew what it meant. The New York Times had started to write pieces about it. Uh, Gay writer Larry Kramer had written some very inflammatory papers, particularly coming out and going, when the fuck are gays going to get angry and start fighting for their lives? Because otherwise, we're all going to die. Kind of, you know, it was a pretty strong rallying cry um, that started to garner some attention. What really got attention, though, was this white well-liked, 13-year-old kid, suddenly getting AIDS. An innocent victim, if you will. Hmm. Uh, after it came out that he had AIDS, uh, parents and other adults from the community who did not have children going to his school uh, petitioned and picketed and essentially made it the case that Ryan could not go to school. He was not allowed to hang it with his friends, not allowed to be in the community because they were afraid that he would spread it to the other children just by being around them. At that point as well, Ronald Reagan reportedly was still not concerned about gay plague. It wasn't until after Rock Hudson, who was a very famous actor as well as a personal friend of Ronald's and Nancy Reagan's, died of AIDS. Um, and after his public disclosure that he had been in the closet and had contracted this disease... It was a while after that before Ronald Reagan finally even said the word AIDS in a public space. You know, by the end of 1985, 18,000 plus Americans were dead. At the candlelight march for Harvey Milk and George Moscone in 1985, Cleve Jones, who had been very active during all of this. Trying to get political movement, trying to get budget from the federal government, from the CDC, from the National Cancer Institute, the whole shebang. He learned that in the Castro neighborhood alone, which is only 10 blocks, it's a very small neighborhood, a thousand people had died. And those that hadn't died, a great portion of that neighborhood was either currently dying or looking after someone who was. Yikes. He mentions looking at all of these candles floating out there and imagining that if this was a meadow with a thousand corpses rotting in the sun, somebody might look at that and finally fucking do something. Which is a pretty morbid thought, but by this point as well, it wasn't uncommon to meet a gay man who had no friends left. Only had acquaintances because all of their friends were dead. And nobody was doing anything. There was no cure. There was no treatment. There was no screening. You didn't know until you were dying. With that thought, he got a bunch of like poster board and markers and started asking marchers to write the names of people they had lost to AIDS. Um, There was some hesitation, but eventually he had quite a few. They marched them down to the federal building in San Francisco and taped them up on the wall uh, as a form of protest. And looking at that, he thought, wow, that looks like a quilt. Like, something that is lovingly made by hand, that is warm, and that is comforting. And from there, he was like, okay, hey, we're doing this fucking quilt. So the, the late half, or the latter half of the 1980s is when you see a lot more activism coming up, ACT UP. is formed, I believe in 1987, with a very direct action approach. There was, it did not operate by consensus. It was, here is what we are doing. And you need to take direct action. And this is not support services. This is shutting down Wall Street. This is breaking up mass. This is getting arrested. It's making some fucking noise or dying trying.
1: This is... We talk a lot about death and grief. And, you know, like, I think the one... The one episode that's kind of gotten me close to tears was Victorian photography. Or post-mortem photography. Yeah. Uh... I'm leaking right now. <laughs> I know. I'm yeah.
0: trying really hard not to cry. No, sorry. It's... Just
1: uh, uh, yeah. talking about the quilt and all the posters and everything and the power behind it.
0: Yeah. To the, me. the, uh, when you said that's something comforting,
1: mm-hmm.
0: there's just so, there's so much empathy there. Mm-hmm. The empathy that they weren't getting from other places.
1: Yeah. because You've got to find it in your
0: community. <laughs> you do. And,
2: and, you know, it's... Part of what's so heartbreaking, too, is that a lot of the men that were dying were closeted. Their family didn't know. And they were finding out via the diagnosis of gay cancer, of gay plague... And that familial homophobia that was rampant at the time would rear its head and suddenly these men and women, these children, would suddenly lose their family. There would be no care system. Funeral homes would refuse to take the bodies of AIDS victims for fear of infection. It's they They had to be you know, their death arrangements were done by their friends, by their community, by the by the ones who were surviving, quite often by friends who were also dying of AIDS themselves. And the government wasn't doing anything. The CDC wasn't doing anything. The National Cancer Institute, there was just infighting and red tape and bureaucracy. Like, in I think it was in 1981, there was a cyanide scare from contaminated Tylenol in New York. And that engendered huge efforts all across the board, by the government, by Johnson & Johnson, by the C- not the CDC, but one of the other health institutions. There was tamper-resistant packaging laws in place in less than a year. They flooded the city with investigators and reporters, and it got huge coverage. And it was two bottles that had been contaminated by one man. Mm -hmm. There was not even 1% of the CDC funding going to AIDS research, and every dollar was pried tooth and nail from the CDC. Cleve Jones put up flyers in the Castro neighborhood looking for community members to help with this quilt. The very first quilt that was made, um, Cleve Jones made it himself for his dear friend Marvin Feldman, who had just died of AIDS. And he reports (laughs) that he wished he had done a better job because Marvin would hate it because it was a bed sheet done with spray paint. But Cleve <laughs> didn't know how to sew. <laughs> he didn't know how to sew, so he did what he could with what he had. But, you know, part of that particular panel is that Marvin's father had been one of the people to go and liberate the death camps in Nazi Germany. And Marvin himself was a gay Jewish man. So as along with his name, Cleve Jones spray-painted on the pink triangle with a blue triangle underneath to make a star of David. All nice. over. And it is it's still part of the quilt today. A woman named Gert McMullen showed up that first day with two panels already made. Uh, Gert McMullen would go on to become the keeper of the quilt. She's been looking after it for 33 years. She's moved across the country with the quilt multiple times because for a lot of gay people that quilt is their only gravesite. site
1: it was the only memorial erected for them i think that uh, gets me is just like like we're kind of we're going through this right now on a global scale and like in a way like nothing's changed like it's still yeah. poor people of color people that are forced to going to work and it's just It's people that have no other fucking choice that are catching these shitty diseases and they're the ones that have to fucking pay.
0: Yeah. And there's so many unempathetic people out there who think it's not their problem, that it's not their responsibility to do things for the greater good for the public at large. And (laughs) it's just... Where Where's your humanity?
2: Yeah, I wish it wasn't the case that we still have huge swaths of people who consider themselves good people, but also believe that there are groups of people that don't deserve to live. And it's... You know, I, I am a queer person living through a pandemic. Been in a couple of countries where things are grossly mismanaged. And where it continues to rage and it continues to kill people if COVID-19 had a 12 to 18 month incubation period in which it was contagious, but latent, I don't know that there would be really anybody left and how lucky we are to be in a, in a age in which the medical community is so on top of things and that researchers are aware of what they're doing, that they almost immediately identified what kind of virus it was Mm -hmm. that they within a year we're working on a vaccine.
0: It's incredible. It's unheard of.
2: Yeah, it is. We are in the luckiest position that we feasibly could be with COVID-19, but the moral majority is not gone by any stretch of the imagination. They don't call themselves that anymore, but it is not gone. That right-wing extremist Only some people deserve to live and the rest are suffering God's punishment. That group is not gone. And it's really upsetting. Um, Yes, it is. And we'll see if something like this quilt is eventually made for COVID victims or if there are just too many. So by October 11th of 1987, so this is a little over a year since Cleve Jones had this idea, the Quilt included over 1,900 grave-sized panels. Uh, these included panels for young children that had stuffed toys and blankets sewn into them. Others included the ashes of the memorialized individual. Um, some had clothing, there was pictures, there was quotes, there was notes. And like I said, for many, this was the only grave they got. Uh, What was really soul-breaking is when I was watching Common Threads, which is a documentary about some of the stories from the quilts um, that was released in 1989. One of the panels included a scribbly note done in a young child's hand that just said, I miss you, Daddy.
0: (laughs) That was not a laugh.
2: (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm now also crying because that fucking i sobbed just that whole film (laughs) i sobbed
1: (laughs) i think what's getting to me is like i guess i'm learning a little bit about myself here is the denial of like the denial of a placed the, the denial of a grave marker i guess And I think that, you know, for the most part, grave markers are for the people that you leave behind, but (laughs) I'm going to try to pull myself together here for a second. (laughs) Um, The fact that nobody bothered, or many people didn't even bother to give their sons and daughters a place to rest and I think that's what that's what's that's what's got me feeling things. And I guess that's yeah. kind of tapping into uh, how I feel <laughs> about mourning and grief. Yeah. And I mean
2: that's that's a huge part of why the quilt was made. That's why the panels are the size of a grave, is demanding that people look at the land that this takes, looking at the number of graves and the sheer space that is no longer taken up by living people, and saying, look at this, you let this happen. When the quilt was displayed for the first time on the National Mall in Washington DC, which was that October 11th, it was during the National March on Washington for Lesbian and Gay Rights, it covered more space than a football field, which I maintain is a stupid unit of measurement. Um, But it included 1920 panels that were assembled into blocks. Each and every block was ceremoniously unfolded by volunteers while celebrities, politicians, family, friends, and lovers read out the names of every person represented in the quilt. Half a million people visited the quilt that weekend and it raised a huge amount of money for AIDS services across the country because again there was no there was no hospice services for these people whether they were dying at home or dying in hospital they were being cared for by their loved ones until the end the the quilt then went on tour around the united states to be displayed in other areas By the time that the quilt came back to Washington D.C. in 1988, it had grown by 6,000 panels. There was 8,288 panels that were displayed on the ellipse in front of the White House, which I believe is a much larger green space. It traveled around the world, raising, you know, half a million dollars. The last display of the AIDS Memorial quilt was in 1996. Uh, So this is well within all of our lifetimes, and at that point the quilt covered the entire National Mall in Washington. It was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, Uh, it was the subject of documentaries, it was making a lot of headway at the same time that groups like ACT UP were making huge progress. ACT UP was also responsible for making it possible for women to be included in experimental uh, drug trials. Because up until that point, the CDC's definition of AIDS excluded women and excluded them particularly from experimental drug trials because of the thalidomide scandal not that long ago, in which thalidomide was prescribed very heartily to pregnant women and resulted in an enormous amount of birth defects in which children were being born without limbs. So ACT UP was huge in getting that rectified because... In 1987, they did start producing AZT, um, which is an antiretroviral medication that helped to reduce the viral load of HIV to try and slow down the development of AIDS, which comes a while after one has HIV. At the time that they discovered that it was a retrovirus and it was reconfirmed because it was first discovered in paris and then again in the united states they were like well we'll a vaccine in two years we still don't have a vaccine in 2021 going on 2022. there was yeah there was huge controversy about the experimental drugs that were coming out there was some ill side effects but like they were like it seems to be helping we cannot withhold this from people who are dying and it was the first time that there was treatment for any of this. Six years after this had started. Six years of people just dying. No treatment, no relief. Like by the end of 1987, there were 71,751 cases of AIDS that had been reported to the World Health Organization, and 47,000 of those were in the US. Th- those are just reported cases. Uh, Common Threads claims that 46,000 people. In the U.S. were dead of AIDS by the end of 1987. It's They were like, three out of four people who get this die. Which is an enormous mortality rate. Cases passed 100,000 in the U.S. by 1990. That was also the year that Freddie Mercury died of HIV-AIDS. Throughout the the 90s, better and better tests were developed for screening HIV And by the time that the last display of the quilts was held, the estimated number of people living with AIDS worldwide was 23 million people. In 1999, we're jumping around a little bit here, uh, the WHO announced that AIDS was the fourth biggest cause of death worldwide and the number one killer in Africa. About 14 million people had died by then worldwide. The year 2000 saw the quilts move from San Francisco to Atlanta for financial reasons. There was over 8,000 more panels received by 2004. By 2012, the quilt was too large to be displayed on the National Mall all at once. And each panel, again, is the size of a grave. If we turned the entire National Mall into a cemetery, it would not be enough for just people who had died Of AIDS and had people close enough to them to memorialize them with the quilts. The panels on the quilt only represent a very small portion of the people who died. In 2019, in November, the National AIDS Memorial became the permanent caretaker of the quilts and the archival collection of over 200,000 objects, documents, cards, and letters were transferred into the Library of Congress. By the time it moved back to San Francisco in 2020, the quilts weighed uh, guess how much? Guess how much the quilt weighed? <laughs> one <laughs> um, ton. One ton? Is your guess?
1: Are we talking the emotional weight, or are we talking physical <laughs> weight? <'cause... laughs> yeah. we're,
2: unfortunately, we're <laughs> only talking the quantifiable
0: <laughs> weight. <laughs> I'll go have these. I think this is half... 500 pounds? Is that half a ton? I don't know. It was 54 tons.
2: Oh, How big so is this thing? It had...
1: Is it, it all is, in one piece, or is it in it's, like, multiple pieces? It's
2: in blocks, so there's about oh, okay. eight panels per block. Um, it required several semi-trucks to move it from Atlanta back to San Francisco. There are nearly 50,000 panels oh in God. dedication to over 100,000 people. Like I said, it's the largest ongoing art community project in the entire world, and it is 1.3 million square feet. I believe it's more than 50 miles long. Gert McMullen still see- oversees and protects that quilt. She keeps everything that falls off of them. She has filing cabinets that are full of of ashes and teddy bears and clothing and names and cards that have come off of the quilts or came with the quilts because she doesn't necessarily know where they go back, but by god, she is not getting rid of them.
1: Mm-hmm. She is and a curator.
2: Absolutely. It's, she's also been called, like, the head, head handmaiden of the, of the quilt.
1: <laughs>
2: it's not how she refers to herself. But when when COVID started to outbreak, and Gert McMullen heard that nurses in her area, some of the same nurses who had been responsible for taking care of her friends and family that were dying of AIDS, um, when she heard that they didn't have enough masks she and some of the team there actually started using donated fabric from the quilts to make mask covers for the n65 masks that they could reuse because over the years a lot of materials were donated to the project for people to come and make their panels from and so they just have tons of this fabric all the way back to 1985 and so it only made sense for Gert to use it to try and save people from yet another epidemic, lest it turn out the same way that the AIDS epidemic did, and they're still making masks, they're sending them out, you know, over a hundred every couple of days, and God, I can't imagine Can I being someone say, who like... who suffered through that and then to watch how aid or how COVID nineteen is
1: playing out. Could, Jesus Christ. Well, Gert's a badass. Oh, absolutely. That goes without saying.
2: Yeah, and there's there's a lot that I wasn't able to include in here. Um, a lot of the stuff done by ACT UP and by other activists, the the specific ways that AIDS attacked Black Americans and immigrants and you know children and HIV or, and uh, IV drug users you know, how it affected sub-Saharan Africa, European countries, how it impacted Canada. There's just not enough time here. I don't have the time to do it justice. But I, I think that there is something very... very human about the the effort by those remaining to make something for the person that they have lost. Like a gift. Like the gift of a personalized Handmade grave to keep them warm and to keep them safe, and it's. it's just I like, think
0: it, if if you <laughs> your country has essentially turned their back on you, and is saying that doesn't matter that your friends are dying. It doesn't matter that these people are dying because they're not the people that we, the people in power, care about. Just to have that one little shred of humanity and care and consideration. If if ghosts are a thing and these, these people who have died of AIDS can see the amount of empathy that they're being given just through this quilt. The amount of care and love. I hope they can see it. Because I can't imagine, I can't imagine how fucking awful it must be to know that you have this disease this virus and three out of four people who get it die say it's 1982 and you get it and why isn't the government doing anything? You know what's going to happen to you you can see it coming and you can see that people don't care how fucking heartbreaking is that?
2: Yeah, and to find out later that the incubation period is so long, and wondering who did I kill, who who did who did I infect, who infected me, and how did they get to somebody else? And being, I think, in that web and looking at all of the directions in which it spools out, and knowing that every person who receives the diagnosis is receiving, in essence, a death sentence. And looking at that web of your community, your hard-won little community of acceptance that has faced police riots and discrimination and to look out and see the tsunami that's coming to collapse it and wash it all away is probably one of the most horrible things I can imagine settling in one's heart. And the quilt received a panel some years ago that just says the last one because the hope is that eventually there will be no more panels being added to the quilt and that there will have to be no more surrogate graves and that we can say that AIDS is over.
0: Let's fucking hope so.
2: Let's fucking hope so. There is a documentary about that panel and about the quilt that I, unfortunately, was not able to access. It's only available through iTunes and it's not available in Canada. (laughs) So... (laughs) And... As much as all of this sucks, and it hurts, and it is... so underrepresented in our education and in our public imagination, but it is important that we know and that we understand the weight Of making things for the people that we lose. For Mm. taking the time to sit down and think about how that person was to us. How did they appear? What did they love? What did, you know, how did they dress? Would they hate this fabric? Would they hate this color? (laughs) Too bad, motherfucker, come and stop me. I'm gonna put sequins on your panel. Like, (laughs) to kind of have that last, like a last coffee date with somebody that you've lost. Is huge. Mm -hmm. Unlike the articles that were released during this time, the 80s and the 90s, that were filled with empty platitudes about how this was going to be over soon, it's probably not a problem. There is some hope on the horizon. There are two cases of AIDS being cured in the world. One is known as the Berlin case, in which a man had extensive stem cell treatment. Um, and for months afterwards, they were not able to find the HIV virus in his system. So he's considered cured, uh, as well as the London case, which was a case of a bone marrow transplant, which again, extensive and expensive, but he no longer had HIV in his system. And with all of everything that immunologists and virologists and... Vaccine development companies have learned through developing the mRNA vaccines for COVID-19. They are set to start in the near future human trials for an HIV vaccine based on the mRNA technology.
1: Wow. So,
2: if we are lucky, the end of this pandemic that we are currently living in will also mean the end of the AIDS pandemic. Wow. So, you can actually look at the quilt online. Through 2020, they were supposed to, they were going to try and display it, but... COVID happened. So they've actually digitalized most of the panels. So if you go to the National AIDS Memorial website, you can search the quilt for specific names. You can search for Marvin Feldman and find the original panel. You can look for Rock Hudson. You can look for Ryan White. You can look for Freddie Mercury. You can just zoom in and just look at the panel and the work and... You know, kind of the unskilled love that went into making panels for people. Because a lot of them do kind of look like kids' art projects. Like cards that your kids bring home from kindergarten for, you know, Mother's Day, Father's Day. But made with just as much love as a child has for their parent. And as a loved one has for their fallen community. Uh, Safe sex is now a very important tenet of queer sexual relations across the board, and making sure that you are getting tested regularly, especially if you are sleeping with multiple partners, and especially if you are having unprotected sex. Pregnancy is not the only thing you have to worry about. So, if you're out there, wear a mask, get vaccinated, make sure you are being tested regularly for STIs, even if you are only sleeping with one person, and take care of each other, take care of your community, Make things for the people that you love, even if they're not with you anymore.
1: Stay safe out there, mortals.
0: Mortals podcast is created, hosted, and edited by three morbidly curious individuals, christia mariah and janine you can find us on twitter at podcast mortals on tumblr at mortals podcast and on instagram at mortals underscore podcast our music is a mermaid's eulogy by etienne roussel thanks for listening mortals take care of yourselves out there